Welcome to Brain Innovate. Uh, we're delighted to have Shane Gronholtz um, speaking to us today. We're going to be talking about welfare. Uh, Shane is based in Spokane, Washington. Uh, would you like to start with a thought experiment? Yeah, so imagine somebody, and we can call him Frank, and he grows up in a religious household and you know it fully takes so he's quite a religious person and he grows into adulthood and he's adopted all of these sort of religious views and one not all religious people have this view but this is a view he has and it's about his own well-being and he thinks that he could only have a, a large amount of well-being that his life would only be a value to him um, that his life would only be a benefit to him if he had a loving relationship with god and he thinks he has that relationship, so he sort of has the standard for his own life, and lucky for him, his, his life sort of meets that standard, um, so everything's good. But as sometimes happens, uh, one day he starts to sort of have uh, doubts about his religious beliefs and starts to question, and eventually he stops believing in God. Um, but weirdly, maybe weirdly, um, his beliefs about what's a benefit to him remain. And so now he has this belief that his life would only be um, sort of worthwhile, would only uh, be beneficial if he had this re loving relationship with God, but he believes he doesn't have it. So he judges that his life is not going so well for him. What philosophers would sometimes say is it doesn't have a lot of prudential value. Um, but he has to carry on. So he, let's say we can say he, he gets married, he finds a job that he, that he finds really um, rewarding and interesting. Um, he has interesting hobbies and good friends, a vibrant social life, all of these sorts of things. So he enjoys his life. Um, he, he's like a pretty happy guy. Um, he's doing all these. In fact, you know, a lot of us, I think, would envy that life. That sounds like a really good life. Um, but if you ask him, how's your life going? He would say, oh, it's not going so well because I don't have this loving relationship with God. Um, and I use that thought experiment because some people think that um, if, if you ask them, you know, what, what constitutes a benefit for somebody or how do we judge whether someone's life is going well for them? Some people will say, and I've asked students this and they say this pretty often, um, but some philosophers say it too. Well, it's sort of up to them that it, whether if their life is going well, if it sort of meets their own um, standards. Um, but what I use this thought experiment to show is that that's not right, because I think a lot of us have an intuitive sense. Hey, he has a great life. Things are going really well for him. True. He makes this sort of cognitive or philosophical judgment that his life's not going so well, but he's just wrong. So if I understand correctly, what you're saying is I can be wrong about whether my life is going well. Um, yep. And it's not a necessary condition that I believe my life is going well for it to go well. Yep. Um, yep. I'm curious how that relates. You've, you've started to talk about the different accounts of well-being and by well-being, I just want to clarify, we mean happiness, right? Um, so, so does it, when we talk about well-being, that my life is going well, are we saying that my life is a happy life? I would be comfortable saying that it's so one thing that's always really complicated here is there's a lot of concepts that seem to sort of go together or overlap, but might be able to be pulled apart in different ways. So, um, I, and in fact, if I'm not mistaken, um, like a lot of psychologists or maybe even economists talk about like sort of well-being and happiness in the same breath as though like they're talking about the same thing. And that's not weird. Like if we say, oh, that person has a really happy life, we might also say they have a really good life. Um, but some people might want to draw a distinction or at least say it's not necessary. Those two things, you know, are two different concepts, although maybe they're closely related. Um, so I just want to clarify that. 
Okay, so so happiness and well-being might be the same, but might not be depending on our conceptions. Uh, right. But we're talking about loosely the same sort of sure. thing. We're not talking about certain other things, though. So we're not talking about things like when your life is going well in terms of morality, for example. Right. So we're not, for example, saying, uh, what does it mean to, to live a good life in a moral sense? We're saying, what does it mean to live, roughly speaking, a happy life? Um, right. And, and now you're saying it's not, it's not necessary for you to believe that you're living a good life in that sense, a happy life, mm-hmm. uh, for you to actually be living a happy life. Okay, so if that's not necessary, if your self-belief around your life, if your judgment around how your life is going is not necessary, what do you need on your view to live a good life, a happy life? So the thought experiment that I gave you at the beginning is um, sort of an, it's, I'm arguing like a negative thesis. So I'm just saying it's not necessary. And in fact, I don't think it's sufficient to make this judgment. And then, of course, your question is, well, well, what is? I'm sort of partial to something like a hedonistic view. Um, and what does that mean? Classically, it means that you have a lot of pleasure. The only thing that's good for you um, is, to have, is to have pleasure or to have pleasurable experiences. Some people sort of, and and again, a lot of students will sort of balk at that because they think pleasure means like having sex and drinking beer and eating jelly beans or something. So it's just like all this, like, you know, strictly speaking, like, and sometimes we call those like hedonic pleasures or like a hedonistic lifestyle. But I think most philosophers, or at least myself, would want to add in other sort of like perhaps more sophisticated psychological states. Although, by the way, I don't want to, uh, all those other things are good too, um, but they might ha- have sort of bad consequences. Um, but you know, t- you know, taking a walk and enjoying the beautiful sunshine and smelling the flowers and being with somebody you love—all of those will count as as pleasures too. So that's the view I'm partial to, but I, but I'm not I'm not you know taking a hard stance on that. So it seems like you could be leading a life that you thoroughly enjoy, uh, in the sense that it makes you happy. Um, but we might think that it's bad for you. So we yeah, can yeah. imagine the person who is um, injecting themselves with heroin um, or uh, having lots of um, meaningless sex, um, eating lots of you know candy, and they say, I'm having the best time of my life. I'm just so giddy with joy. We say, but it looks like from an outside perspective, you're not leading a meaningful life um, and your life could be going badly. Uh, it also appears to be the case, you say that someone could be leading a good life, um, and be mistaken about it. So they have all of the things that we think are important uh, to leading a good life. They have good relationships, uh, intellectual pursuits, but they're just very downbeat. And so their mm-hmm. subjective experience of reality is distorted in some manner. And they say, well, I'm deeply unhappy and therefore my well-being is, is uh, you know, negatively affected. It strikes me that well-being really is trying to cover this gap between, you know, your subjective experience of something and an objective reality um, that it's not mere like happiness and joy in the sense that you perceive it. It's also a connection with objective goods in the world. Yeah. So that's, um, that's a pretty deep issue, right? So, uh, and you frame that really well. So on the one hand, we have sort of our subjective experiences. What does it feel like sort of from the inside? And then we think that well, at least some people think, and not at all implausibly, that it, it should match up to the way the world actually is sort of in the right sort of way. And interestingly, a lot of theories will like do well on one of those, but badly on the other. So um, hedonism, of course, very much is emphasizing you know, how your life feels from the 
inside, like what it's like, what your experiences are like, what's the nature of those experiences? Are they good ones? Are they ones you like having? Um, but it makes no reference to the external world. And then there are other theories. So you mentioned, you know, from an outsider's perspective, you have all these great things, intellectual pursuits, satisfying relationships. Um, if you think those things are good, you're not necessarily an objective list theorist, but you might be. So they just say, look, if you have these things, I don't know, things like knowledge or friendship or, and pleasure might be on there too, then things are going well for you. But, um, you know, you might have those things, not pleasure wouldn't matter here because we all like pleasure, but you might have a bunch of things on the objective list, but be thoroughly miserable. So here now the, you, you have the external circumstances in the right sort of way, but your internal um, experience is, is, is really bad. Well, I suppose what I'm wondering is this is, do we have to pick between accounts? Is it a matter of saying, look, all that matters is, are you internally having a good time? Or do we say, no, no, that doesn't matter at all. It's just, are you striving for things that objectively matter in the world? Or is it about the connection between the two? I just really emphasize, this is sort of something, maybe dispositionally, I suppose, where I, I think it's, it's about the experiences. But there are really interesting accounts that try to sort of bridge that. Um, Wayne Sumner, uh, who's very influential in this field, sort of talks about happiness, but he says, and so that sounds sort of experiential, but he says, it's not just happiness, it's authentic happiness. And authentic happiness means that, first of all, it has to be based on the right beliefs. So if you're like watching a game or maybe you're not watching a game because then you'd know, but you, you're invested in a game and you think your team won, um, and so you're really happy, but they didn't, then you might feel happy, but it's not authentic happiness because it's based on a false belief. The sort of standards by which you're judging your life uh, to, and, and that's making you happy, uh, he says those have to be sort of um, autonomously formed. So they can't be the result of like manipulation or brainwashing or anything um, like this. Uh, I think Amartya Sen gives uh, an example of like a beggar who's very impoverished and his life is just very, very bad. So his standards have become quite low. And so then he gets like a, you know, somebody gives him $5 or a half eaten meal and he's really, really happy. And so we might say, you know, he, he feels really happy, but there's something, you know, worrying about his his own standards so for that reason he's not authentically happy so that authentic part there is trying to connect the experience with the um external world and that's that's um you know that's an interesting attempt i'll give you another one if you're interested in hearing another attempt at this so chris heathwood who is actually my dissertation advisor he's really influential in this field he's a desire satisfactionist uh theorist and so he thinks you know what it is to be benefited or to have a life going well is getting what you want. Um, and then he also says uh, the most compelling account of uh, pleasure is, is in fact getting what you want. So at least while you're getting it. So um, he, he gives an example of getting an unexpected back massage. So maybe you weren't even thinking about it at the time, but as soon as it starts, you're like, oh, this feels really good. I'm into this. And getting what you want while you're getting it is just to be in a state of pleasure. So that's sort of another attempt to sort of reconcile these views where one emphasizes the internal and one sort of emphasizes the external. So if I understand correctly, there's two main types of views. You get subjectivist views, which focus on the subjective states of the person involved, how right. they feel, the experiences they have, and the pleasure they have as constituting happiness. And then you get the other type of view, which is an objectivist view, which looks at the objective features of a life 
whether that life is satisfying certain criteria. For example, is the person educated? Do they have health? Um, are they wealthy? Do they have enough money? Um, so, you know, do they have good relationships? Have they developed a family? You might have a whole list of objective goods. And then you ask, is that person's life measuring up? And I can totally understand how on the objective view, on the object list view, why your initial claim that mm -hmm. our whether our life is going well or not, our judgment of that is not necessary for our life to go well. Because right. all you do is you look at the objective list and you say, well, that person's life is going well or not, but on that list might not be, you know, that the person judges their own life to be going well. Um, but what I can't understand is how a hedonist, which it sounds like you tentatively are, how yeah. a hedonist could also believe that. Because it seems to me like if I believe that my life is going badly, I will experience sadness. And a hedonist doesn't like sadness. He doesn't like that, that experience of feeling down, right? Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about how, yeah, my thesis would definitely be a lot easier to endorse from an objectivist framework because, you know, it's just an objective fact that if you have these things, then your life is going well and you can be wrong about that. Um, so part of what's going on here is often our sort of like affective states, our sort of happiness or sadness, uh, do interact with the judgments we make about the conditions of our own life, sort of in both directions. So as you just pointed out, if you think your life is going bad, that will probably make you sad. And also, if your life is going well, um, you're feeling really good, um, you know, a hedonist would say, then you will probably also judge, hey, things are going great. Although actually not necessarily in that case, because you might just not be a hedonist. And so like you're feeling really good, uh, but you're not a hedonist. So you think those aren't relevant or at least not the only thing that's relevant to your well-being. Um, so yes, that's all true. Um, but um, it seems at a minimum, those two things are two different things, the judgment you're making about your own life and sort of the way you feel. Those interact, but they're different. And I accept that some people, sort. I mean, one, so a concern that might be in the neighborhood of the concern you're raising is whether somebody like Frank is even possible, because it's just really weird to imagine somebody who's like living this rich, full life and having good, enjoyable experiences, getting what they want, um, but they make this sort of sober judgment, oh, my life's not going too well. Um, so uh, I think somebody like Frank is possible. He might be unusual or idiosyncratic, but I don't know. I, I can imagine someone like that. Um, and so that's, I don't know. So that's, that's enough. What do you, what do you think about that? So I, I, uh, I'm a hedonist. Um, yeah. And I'm one of those horrible hedonists that, uh, <laughs> that, 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 that your students dislike, the one that likes the jelly beans and the sex and all the, okay. the basic goods. Uh, and and I, I think, you know, yeah, there are higher pleasures as well, like listening to great music and talking philosophy. This is pleasurable. Um, but, but the reason why these are good, in my view, is that you need a break from all the sex and the jelly beans. Uh, because right. if you just eat jelly beans all day, you're going to get sick and eventually there's a refractory period. You can't just have sex all day. And so during the refractory period and the nausea from all the jelly beans, you have to host brain in a vat and talk right. about hedonism. Um, so, so that's, that's my view of happiness. Um, mm -hmm. um, now on that view of happiness, it just seems so weird to me to think while I'm eating all these jelly beans that my life is going badly mm. 
and to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be weird for me. Yeah. Um, well, uh, here's one thing. I have a friend um, who claims not to care about happiness. I find that so strange. Sometimes I wonder if he's being totally honest with me. Um, but, you know, maybe he is, but he still does things that he enjoys. Um, he's, a, he's a big whiskey guy and drinks a lot of whiskey. I mean, not too much, but, you know, I don't want to paint him in a bad light here. But, um, but he, that, he at least claims that he doesn't really care about happiness, and yet he's capable of being happy. So, yeah, I'm sort of with you. I, I, I take pleasure in all the things that you uh, mentioned, um, but I also value it. And so there's nothing that weird there. Um, one thing I'll mention that might make uh, the story of Frank a little b- more palatable. Well, a couple things. One is he just has so his judgment, we might say, is like sort of philosophical or, or cognitive. I use those terms earlier. So he just he just believes it and it doesn't affect you know, the way he experiences his life all that much, that itself isn't that strange. You know, sometimes, I mean, here's a simple example. A lot of times people don't do the very things that they think are moral. And this is a separate issue, but just, you know, the judgments we make don't always correspond perfectly to the way we actually live our lives. There are some people, so Frank might, you know, he makes this judgment. He, he's like, yes, my life is of no value, but there's nothing I can do about that. Who cares? Might as well enjoy it as much as I can. So, yeah, a couple of thoughts. I mean, it seems like there's a good possibility of a Frank. In other words, if the thing that you believe grounds meaning in the world has been taken away from you, that would have an effect on your subjective experience of reality. It would put a dampener on your mood if you thought all the stuff that I was doing was really so that I could connect with this divine being. And it turns out there isn't a divine being. Uh, and I, I think that would fill you with some existential dread. Um, that seems like you know the correct response to have for the religious person who loses their faith. I wonder about something else, which is it seems like we can be mistaken about certain beliefs. So if I believe the world is flat, it doesn't make it so because the world is not flat. But can I be mistaken about other beliefs that are internal to me? So can I be mistaken about being in a state of agony? Um, that seems like you can't be mistaken about it. I am experiencing a state of agony. I therefore believe that I am in agony, and therefore I am in agony, that there is no you know, way to disambiguate those two things, um, because those subjective states of agony are internal to me. And we might think the same about pleasure, um, the sense that if you, know, you believe that you're in a pleasurable state, well, then you are in a pleasurable state. Something that you hinted at earlier, which is pretty fascinating, is this notion of authentic happiness. And I think that example that you give about the guy who's cheering for his team and thinks that they've won and is happy. Now, I would think they are happy. It's just that if you told them what was true, which is that their team actually lost, the state would change. And so, in other words, given the full facts, you would no longer feel the state that you're feeling. But it seems strange to say, no, this person isn't happy when they're, you know, dancing with joy and singing and, you know, doing all the stuff and experiencing this internal happiness. You might just think that they're happy for a bad reason. The, I, I was discussing Sumner views in this con- Sumner's views in this context. And so he might say that the person who's jumping up and down because he falsely believes that his team won, he might say he is happy, but he's not authentically happy. And um, that's a problem. Um, so I'm, I, I don't remember every detail of his view, but he might say author- um, happiness, sort of simpliciter, is 
good for you, but it's not the full deal. So your, your life is really only going well for you in like a big, robust way if you're authentically happy. And then that has to connect up with the, um, the external world. I, I'm fine with that. I like, you know, views that try to, you know, reconcile, you know, you know, other views. Um, but I don't know, for me, I'm just like, hey, he's happy. Um, that's cool. Like, and in fact, don't tell him that his team lost because then he won't be happy anymore. And then, you know, he won't be benefited. I, I don't quite get the motive. I get the motivation intellectually and in that you want to try to clear up some things that that seem odd about the view, but sort of um, like, emotionally i don't quite understand why you would want to say for the belief to be a benefit or sorry for the emotional state of happiness for it to be a benefit to you uh it, ha it has to be based on a true belief because like the person's super happy and and that that's what we want there's another version here that i think is more compelling to some people though i think shelly kagan was the first person to come to this and this actually does share some things with the experience machine, which we haven't talked about in detail and we can, but um, this is the person who's in a relationship with somebody and, and, you know, he believes that it's like a loving relationship, like let's say with a spouse or something. And, um, but it turns out the spouse actually despises him and is like always talking shit behind him, uh, behind his back and, you know, actually hates him and is constantly ridiculing him. So the, you know, the, the first person is very happy and thinks they're in this loving relationship and it's so great, but, and so they, they're having all the experiences that we would want, but uh, it turns out that it's all just a lie and, you know, the other person despises him and mocks him. And, and then I think a lot of people then will have the intuition like, well, that's, that's not so good. He, something, um, something's going wrong for him. His life is not as good as it could be. It, if nothing else, we would say it would be better if this person wasn't doing all those things, right? That would seem to be an improvement. So Sumner is trying to solve the experience machine problem, right? So the experience machine problem is a problem for hedonists like me because yeah, yeah. the experience machine so the, the, the thought example, if I remember correctly, comes from Nozick. Yeah. And um, Nozick says, well, imagine there's this machine and you could plug in and this machine will give you every experience you can dream of. Uh, you can program the machine to give it whatever experiences you want. Uh, it'll give you those wonderful chocolate sundaes and the jelly beans and the sex. And in the experience machine, you won't get nauseous and there won't be a refractory period. And you can just have sex and jelly beans all day. Right. Uh, but the problem is that it's just you alone in that experience machine. There's no one else plugged in with you. In the experience machine, you'll believe there's other people as part of your experience. So you'll believe that your favorite people are there and your friends are there and your lovers are there and the jelly beans are there, but there's no real jelly beans, no real people. There's just this experience and maybe a drip in your arm and a tube into your stomach to feed you. And you're just this lifeless body lying there drooling and dreaming this wonderful dream. And as you say, in the experience machine, Nozick says, well, if you would be depressed by that thought while you're in the experience, well, we can make you forget that you're in the experience machine. And the question is, well, why wouldn't I step in forever if I'm a hedonist? And Sumner says, well, you wouldn't because it, your experiences need to be pleasure, pleasured by real things. Um, in other words, it needs to be real jelly beans, it needs to be authentic jelly beans, not fake jelly beans. It needs to be real authentic sex, not fake sex. Um, and so he solves the problem. He explains why intuitively we wouldn't get into the experience machine for the rest of our lives. Um, it seems like a good solution. I've always liked Sumner's work. Um, so Mark says, but hold on, then that's overly uh, exclusive. It excludes certain pleasures as real pleasures, even though they're not from real things. And 
it seems like people can experience real pleasure until they know that it's not real. Um, so there's this problem for the hedonist. Yeah. So sorry. So you want to know. Um, so uh, if I'm let me just make sure I'm understanding you correctly. So the, the sort of straightforward problem is a lot of people are going to look at the subject in the experience machine and say, no matter how pleasurable his experiences are, that is not a good life. That that's not a life any of us should want. Is, is that the problem you're getting at? Or are you also saying maybe there's a sense in which even fake pleasures can be perfectly good for us? Or is it mainly the first one? Well, it's the first, um, yeah. but, and then Sumner replies to that by saying, well, then let's make sure the pleasures are authentic. But then the problem yeah. is that it excludes certain pleasures that Mark says are really pleasurable that you could have in the experience machine. Um, yeah. And so how do you, how do you resolve this problem? I haven't done a poll on this, but I, okay, some people are going to disagree, right? But I, I think it's pretty easy to see how even fake pleasures, well, the pleasure is real. They're brought up about in artificial ways. Um, you know, if they feel good, a lot of us are going to want them and say like, yeah, that's good for you. The problem with the experience machine is that that's all you're getting. Um, and so it's, I mean, it's a brilliant thought experiment. It might've inspired the matrix. It's, it's so fun and interesting to think about. I was really struck by how you mentioned other people. So um, I'm attracted to hedonists, but I'm not a, a, a hedonism, but I'm not a full on or at least a super committed hedonist as I am with most things. I'm kind of wishy-washy. And one of the things that gives me the greatest pause is that in the experience machine, you might just be in there alone and you would have no real relationships. Now, all of your experiences tell you that you do. And so if I was a pure hedonist, I would say, yep, that's fine. Who cares? But that really gives me pause that all of your experiences would be, or all of your relationships would be artificial. And in fact, the, the way of, I think the first time I thought of the experience machine, I thought, well, as long, and this was sort of in the absence of any philosophical commitments I had at the time, I thought, I would do the experience machine as long as there were other real people in there with me um, uh, who could, who I could have like actual authentic relationships uh, with. I mean, so there's lots of things you don't get in the experience machine. So you might have achievements, but they're not real achievements. Um, if you want, and here I'm, I'm getting away from hedonism a little bit and just talking about, can you still have a good life in the experience machine? The experience machine could be set up so that you do have real adversity. I mean, people have wondered whether we're living in a simulation, right? Well, it sure feels like we're living in the real world and our achievements, um, I mean, they actually do take determination and they're, you know, they're, they're hard won and all of that. So I don't know, I, I don't actually lose any sleep over whether I'm in a simulation because if my achievements count, they count either way because like I really did work for them. I, I don't really put achievement on the, on the list because, you know, I'm kind of a hedonist. But, but if you want that on the list, you might still be able to get that in the experience machine. So I want to track back to something you talked about earlier, this notion that you could have a desire satisfaction account. Um, and the idea is that one might have a desire to experience things that are real um, in a way that, as you've pointed out, really, the, the hedonist can't draw this distinction because I'm feeling the sensation of pleasure. It doesn't really matter whether it generates from a true source or not. The fact is I have, you know, the sensation. Um, whereas the desire satisfaction theorist can say, but, but hold on, I, I want what I'm experiencing to track reality because I have this particular kind of desire. Um, now, I wonder if there 
are certain kinds of desires that might be strange um, in the sense that it's hard for us to make sense of them. So you can imagine this, the masochist who has a desire to experience suffering um, or someone you know who has uh, very unconventional uh, desires. Let's say I, uh, I have a desire to be disabled. Um, so I want my my legs cut off uh, because it sort of matches my my internal sense of what I would like for myself, uh, or I desire to be a centaur, uh, and so I want my I want a body built for myself that's sort of crafts me onto a, a horse-like thing. You know, are there certain kinds of desires where we say, well, that's a bad desire to have, um, or even if you have the desire, we ought not to give it to you. If we go down that route, do we sort of stray down the dangerous path of of paternalism, where we say someone else knows better than you know? Yeah, um, great. I mean, um, so yes, intuitively, it does seem like there can be bad desires. The centaur one, that's bad um, because you're not going to get it. <laughs> so at least not anytime soon. Um, so I, I mean, it might be perfectly fine in the sense that like you can have that desire and then maybe your your life won't be going. So if that's your overarching desire, then and desire satisfactionism is true, then your life's not going to be going so well for you. Um, the masochist, I think most desire satisfaction, actually desire satisfaction, I think deals really well with masochism because, um, I, I, at least I don't want to be, uh, paternalistic and say like, there's something wrong with, um, being a masochist. And even though it's painful in the hedonistic sense, it's good that the person's getting it because it's what they want. So that's great. That's that. I think that matches up really nicely getting your, having your legs amputated, um, I mean, if you want to be like a really pure desire satisfaction uh, theorist, sure. I mean, why not? Uh, it's, it's unconventional. What might be wrong? Like, in what sense would that be a bad desire to have? W one is that it might turn out to be really bad when you get it, right? You get a sort of un unhappy surprise. Um, so that, that might be a problem. And then um, these sorts of theorists do a few different things. Uh, for a long time, a popular route was to go um, ideal. So it's not what you actually desire. It's what your ideal, an ideal version of yourself would desire. So what's that? Um, maybe you have to be like fully rational and have full information. So if it turns out that you would hate getting your legs cut off once it happened, well, then you don't have full information because you think you would love it. Um, so you're lacking this information. So it's not actually good for you yeah I, I like that move um so as you say it seems like there are different levels of desire one could have in other words there's the uh immediate desire i have a whimsical desire one that could have very long-term consequences for me and i might regret enacting it uh the other ones you say are the desires that could never be met so you can imagine uh desiring to to be with a hollywood film star that you're hopelessly in love with but it's never going to happen and how the desire could gnaw away at you and in that sense is bad for you to have this desire that cannot be requited unless you have some other meta desire which would be to sort of be in this state of constant enchantment you know having that unrequited love you think mm. quite romantic um so it seems like we could have this range of desires that the, the move about what one ought to want is quite interesting um and i suppose we might think that the the more consequential the choice that you're making is the more we want to bring in things like informed consent um i mean this gets interesting you know we've talked about let's say someone who you know wants to be uh, transabled or you know a trans species um 
Could you imagine something like this? And this would be kind of controversial territory, I suppose. Um, but a child who believes that they are born in the wrong sex and at a young age would would like a, a physical operation to change that. Um, now, it might be the case that many years down the line, they regret it. Um, they're rendered infertile. Uh, they, they thought that the choice wasn't a solid choice. Or it could be that it was the perfect choice for them, um, that, that they led a much happier, better life, that they were, you know, weren't haunted by feeling like they're in the wrong body and it might not be possible to know in advance um, right. what the what the correct outcome is um partly because there'll be factors outside of control of the agent so the way that the world will treat you based on your choices yeah yeah i i think that's exactly what makes uh this issue so difficult and complicated the you know um young children who want to transition because now I don't know enough about this to speak, you know, very intelligently about it, but um, just assume that there are either making a certain intervention or not making a certain intervention might have long-term consequences. And we just can't know with any certainty what they are. So, I mean, one, if we want to be cautious, this is just me again, sort of going off the dome here. If we want to be cautious, we might want to, um, hold off on anything that will have irreversible consequences, whether that's intervention or non-intervention, because either of those might have, although now it might be, that, that might be impossible, um, but whatever will have like the minimal consequences, right? We want, because children are, you know, they're unformed and, you know, they, you know, I, I, have a, I have a son and if I gave him everything he wanted, like that would be terrible, I'd be a terrible parent. Um, so, um, yeah, I just think that that's what makes it really, really difficult. I know I haven't said anything very interesting, but as you said, like what a what a child is going to want and how that's going to affect their life down the future, it's just really hard to predict. And that, that's a problem for the desire satisfaction theorist because the desire satisfaction theorist, at least in its simplest form, in in the simplest form of the theory, says that well, if you get what you want, it's always good for you. Right. Uh, but you know what Mark's trying to point out is that it might not be good for you. Um, and that they can't make that distinction. It might be good for you, but it might uh, frustrate future desires. So, um, you know, if a, if a child wants to transition, it's not that it's not that weird to say it, then it's good for him right now to transition. That that is good. There's nothing mysterious about that. But it might frustrate future desires, which we just can't know about. We're not in a position to know about. And so there's quite a difficult uh, calculation, maybe an impossible yeah. calculation that needs to be performed at any given time for the desire satisfaction theorist who has to look at, will the satisfaction of this desire impact future desires and how far in advance does the desire satisfaction theorist have to look? It may be impossible. Um, this is a problem for utilitarians yep. generally, uh, is trying to look at the consequences, how far in advance do you have to look to know whether an action's right. What, I, what I'd like to think about is um, Mark has often brought up the word meaning in this discussion. Um, and in the beginning, I said, well, we're definitely not looking at goodness or well-being in terms of morality. Are there other values as well that are quite different from well-being, like meaning? Or is it the same thing? When we talk about someone's life going well, do we mean they're living a meaningful life? Or are we talking about two totally different things? Are we talking about well-being and meaning as distinct uh, values that might even compete? They seem distinct to me, 
Um, so uh, here's here's a line I'm happier to draw much more sharply, which is the moral and the prudential, what we're talking about well-being. Um, although even some people there will say, so some people say, you know, if you're getting pleasure from doing something evil, like torturing a child or something, then that pleasure is sort of contaminated, even with respect to the way it's affecting your well-being. Um, as a hedonist, but again, not as a hedonist, I just, this just seems natural to me. What I would say is like, well, that person's horribly immoral, but things are going pretty well for them because they're they're really happy and though those to me strike me as two very distinct concepts meaning seems closer to well-being than morality does um at least to me i will say though that i've always had a little bit difficult uh, a time with the concept of meaning it's it seems quite slippery to me and i'm not super familiar with the literature but if somebody said um, I mean, you could have a view of well-being, which just says having a life rich in well-being is the same thing as having a very meaningful life, or one is grounded in the other, or something like that. Um, so I, I can see how those some people would take those to be much, much closer. They still seem different to me. Um, one thing I'll say, and you know, so many of these concepts, and you know, philosophers like to pull concepts apart, they seem so close. Um, a lot of people want a meaningful life, and so they'll feel pretty dissatisfied um, if they don't get one, or if they, you know, they think their life um, is not meaningful, and then they'll feel sad, and that's like bad for the hedonist. Or they want a meaningful life, and they don't get one, so it's bad from the desire satisfaction view. Um, for me, though, um, if you don't care about having a meaningful life, and you don't have one, then fine, that's, that's okay. You can still have a good life. Because the reason I raise this is that I think that's the solution to the um, experience machine problem. As a hedonist, I'm prepared to say that if you plug in for the rest of your life, you will live a very happy life, yeah. full of pleasure, but it won't be meaningful because you won't have relationships with other people and your mm -hmm. achievements will just be simulated achievements. They won't be mm -hmm. real achievements. So what I want to say is that reality, that real connection with things is necessary for a meaningful life, but not necessary for a happy life. Yeah, I like that. And um, we might also say with, with the with the moral too. maybe another thing, you know, the reason a life in the experience machine is a deficit in some way is it will be a more a morally sort of irrelevant life. It might not be bad because you're not harming people or whatever, but it's but you're certainly not doing any good in the world. Here's a sweet story that you can leave in if you want to. But um, my mom, when I was, you know, kind of coming into adulthood, she told me a story about um, being in a, a Bible study. I was raised in a very religious household and they were talking about what they most want for their children. And, you know, the, probably the most common answer was like, I want them to have a loving relationship with Jesus and these kinds of things. Maybe some others talked about like, you know, success in their careers. And my mom said, I, I, the thing I want most for my children is for them to be happy. And I always loved that story. And, um, you know, it made me feel very warm. And and I, I think that's exactly right. That's what I want for my child, too. I, I want him to be happy. You know, if you tell me he's not going to have that, you know, successful of a career or make a lot of money, I don't care. Like, I just mainly want him to be happy. Although there's a wrinkle there because I also do want my child to be a moral person. Um, so, so it's not a perfect test. But but sometimes our intuitions, you know, as we, this is getting back to the beginning a little bit now, get a little bit muddy because we think we're judging something in terms of the um, in terms of well-being, but we're getting led astray a little bit by bringing in like meaning or morality into it. So it strikes me that in our conversation, we've touched on a number of different kinds of values. Um, and it seems like if we're trying to determine whether someone is leading 
a worthwhile life, that one of the factors is going to be, do they have, you know, happiness in their life? You know, is there some sense of, you know, subjective enjoyment? Um, some of it's going to be, are they doing good things in the world? You know, are, are they helping others? Um, are they doing evil things in the world, causing lots of suffering and pain? Um, are they doing important projects? It seems different, you know. Um, and it strikes me that on the one hand, when we're trying to weigh up the life, um, if you only had one of those things, um, it's not clear to me that being happy would be the one that I'd pick. And one of the ways that I'd think about this would be if I had to spend time with someone uh, and I've got my choice between the person who is, you know, the moral person, the person who's like giddy with joy and the person who might be, you know, the, the Socratic type who's kind of a bit depressed but has all these like wonderful ideas, you know, I don't know if I'd pick the you know, the e-bunny who is sort of jumping around and just so delighted with everything and kind of felt a bit, a bit vacant. Um, I, I might think that if if my kid was just giddy with joy but missed out on these other things, I would think that they hadn't hadn't led a good life um, because a good life implies these things that are beyond that. Um, and I can imagine someone who was, you know, a bit of an Eeyore, um, you know, at the end of their life saying, well, you know, I wasn't very happy, but but wow, I did all these meaningful things and it was, a, it was overall a life worth living. I think phrases like um, a good life or life worth living are just ambiguous. Um, so, um, you know, a good life might mean a morally good life. And then we can, and I actually have views about this, about what separates morality from other kinds of values. It's, a, it's like a very intuitive view, but a lot of people don't like it, which is basically morality is about how you interact with other people. And if you're like good and decent to them. Um, so you, so right. I mean, and if that's right, um, you can be like, you know, benefit other people or, you know, honor your deontological duties to them, whatever view of morality we want and be totally depressed, in which case you live a excellent, life in terms of morality. You lived a very morally good life, but a life very low in well-being. Um, or you can just be like um, like a total asshole, but you enjoy your life a lot or get what you want. And then we'd say, wow, that was a great life in terms of like your own well-being. The, all, all of the things you got were like beneficial to you, but you know, you're morally uh, very bad. As I say, you, I mean, you're right to point out that a good life, uh, I, I'm trying to have an umbrella. So I'm trying to say that a truly mm. good life has all these different values inside of it. Once we get to the picking, uh, that's where I want to say, well, it seems like there could be trumps, you know, and if I had to pick what my neighbors would be like, for example, you know, I, and I had a choice between, are they going to be moral people or giddy with joy people? I'd definitely pick moral people, right? Yeah. Um, you know, having a bunch of happy idiots around doesn't strike me as very much of a good thing even if they're having a great time, you know, um, and they're not the kind of people that I'd want to spend any time with either. I'd much rather spend time with, you know, as I say, the those that are creating beautiful things in the world that are, you know, striving for aesthetic stuff, you know, or, you know, making more knowledge. You know, it seems like the person who's just like eating the jelly beans and um, sucking themselves off, like, yeah, maybe they're fun to spend, you know, time with on the occasional weekend, but, you know, I, I'd want something more from them. Sure. There are a lot of fun to spend time with on the occasional weekend. <laughs> um yeah they might be um yeah I, I like spending time with people who are enjoying themselves although that's not sort of um that's not going to be enough because they might 
be enjoying themselves because they're harassing me, um, in which case like, I, I care more about them being moral. So I don't, I don't know if um, who would I want to spend time with is, I, I like where you're going with like, is there some umbrella? Um, I mean, we might like the word like, are, are these values commensurate in some way or can, or can they be folded into some overarching value? Um, yeah, like, you know, if there's a God, can would God be able to make sense of, you know, just what what is the the best life simpliciter, not in terms of meaning, not in terms of morality or well-being, just simpliciter. I don't know. I, I haven't thought about that too much. I, I'm kind of skeptical. I, th- I think I might I think I just might want to say that they're, they're just different things and you can have them to various degrees and there's there's no overarching. Um, yeah, you might prefer that your neighbors are moral rather than having a great time. But that's because that, well, I don't know if this is what you're saying, but what <laughs> the one reason why you would want that is because if they're immoral, then they might do bad things to you and then that'll make you worse off. So it would be natural that you'd prefer not to spend time around them. So there are some philosophers who do think that um, at least there's certain answers to this question of what is the best kind of life in terms of the various weighting of the values that are definitely wrong. Uh, So Susan Wolf is a favorite philosopher of mine who says that it would definitely be wrong if the only value you had to its most extreme degree was morality and nothing else. She says, imagine what a moral saint would be like. Um, this person who only does the right thing. Well, they would never uh, learn how to play tennis. Uh, They would never read for pleasure. They couldn't talk about movies. Why? Because the time that they could be spending on all of those things could be spent doing better things. Uh, And they'd be pretty awful. Um, If your child came to you one day and said, well, I want to become a moral saint. She said, you should strongly discourage them from doing so because their lives won't go well. Um, So, I do, I do like these arguments for why certain answers that rule out certain values are definitely the wrong answers. Something that non-philosophers get very uh, frustrated with philosophers about is when they, when they listen to discussions like these, uh, they want an answer, right? So they want to know, okay, so, so we'll probably title this episode something like, um, what makes you happy? Or what makes your life go well? And now someone, oh, it's like, oh my goodness, this is a self-help uh, episode and I'm going to get some answers to this question. Right. Uh, because when they listen to self-help uh, psychologists or they read self-help books out of philosophy, they, they get answers to these questions. What, what, what should be arising from this discussion is we're skeptical that any of those answers will be true. Uh, why? Because this issue is so complicated. Uh, and so a non-philosopher listening to this at the end might feel frustrated and say, so then what's the answer? You know, what do I do? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a fine title. Um, what makes your life go well? But it's a little bit, and, and this goes to um, something I said much earlier. If I say, what will make my life go well? And you say, um, you should um, start doing Buddhist uh, meditation. That's an answer in a certain way, right? It's a very like practical answer. Like if you do this, then your life will go better or whatever. Um, but that's not the question we're asking. We're asking like what what's constitutive of like a benefit or of welfare? And um, you might be interested in that question, and you might not be. Um, but um, actually, I, you mentioning Susan Wolf made me um, think about something uh, that Mark mentioned because i said i'm skeptical that there is an overarching this is going to be unsatisfying but that there is an overarching sort of 
good life. Um, there might be. I can't remember if Susan Wolf says that the reason uh, you should not be a moral saint is because it's not fully rational to do. I don't remember um, if she speaks in terms of rationality, but that's certainly some place that I would want to go. So in other words, there might just be more to, and a lot of philosophers will use rationality as like the ultimate standard. So, um, and so sometimes when we say like, why be moral? that question's intelligible because we might say, well, there's more to rationality than simply morality. And so um, maybe there's, and again, this sounds sort of vague right now, and we're going to fill this in in various ways, but there's, there's some standard umbrella standard, and we'll just call that rationality. And then you can fold everything into that, and how you do that is going to be, you know, is gonna, there's going to be a whole thing there, but but maybe the reason why it's um, you shouldn't try to be a moral saint. We can't say it's immoral to be a moral saint because you're the most moral you can possibly be. So it's it's um, deficient in some other way, and maybe that other way. And this is maybe just a placeholder, but we say it isn't fully rational because there are other things that matter for rationality than just than just morality. And I'd be happy with that. So do you take the view that you could be leading a uh, a good life if you only focused on pleasure. In other words, if you neglected these other things, these other baskets of goods, I, I agree with you that they probably are incommensurate. We can't just translate them into each other. Uh, they seem like freestanding goods. I, I think Wolf's correct to say that if you only focus on the moral, you might be you know, leading a life that was uh, a poor life. You would have neglected all these other things that would make your life richer. Um, could you just get there through the pursuit of pleasure? Could you say, well, I strove for happiness and I got it and therefore I, I led um, you know, a life that was worth living? Yeah, I feel, <laughs> I feel like you're asking a question and um, I might be missing it because I maybe you've asked it in a few different ways and um, you've been unsatisfied with the way I've answered. Um, so uh, here, going back to rationality, so I, I'm a moral realist, that's controversial, but I am. And one way to talk about moral realism is to say like there are these objective moral standards and like because they're objective, you just, you, you ought to care about them. Um, they're sort of rational standards. So you might have lived a life that's full of pleasure, right? A totally hedonistic life. It was maybe morally neutral and maybe even morally bad. You screwed all these people over to, to get it. And I would say, so if morality is connected importantly to rationality, you certainly didn't live a fully rational life because you were morally bad. Um, um, and then you might say, well, why should that person care? They should care because it was irrational. Um, and, but then they say, but I don't care. And then I'll say, okay, so you don't care about rationality. There's nothing I can do about that. Yeah. So it seems like you could live a, a life full of well-being yeah. uh, and screw everyone over. Yeah. You, could, yeah. you could live a very happy life, uh, but the word good is ambiguous because right. good is, you know, it could, it could mean moral, it could mean well-off, uh, could mean meaningful. And so the word good is what's tripping us up. It seems like we could talk about just the sense of happiness uh, in that, uh, uh, you know, kind of low level sense of it, or we could talk about these sort of sophisticated pleasures, which might have to take into account moral pleasures. So we might think, for example, that there is a, a hierarchy of pleasures that you could have. 
um, and that you know we just can't add up uh, jelly beans and blowjobs to kind of get to the the real pleasure of um, I don't know being Mother Teresa and helping people with leprosy um, and so you might think just on a hedonic account that you've missed out because you you only got the bottom rungs of the the pleasure ladder and that if you kept climbing um, you know you would have led a a, a more uh, pleasurable life she she said she, she changed bedpans and I doubt it was pleasurable um yeah I, I mean you can certainly imagine someone living a very meaningful life that's very unpleasurable uh if that's a word very very un, uh, full of full of displeasure right um, I'm glad we got to this because Jason touched on it much earlier and I was hoping we'd have a chance to talk about it and so um we I mean you talked about moral pleasures but we might so John Stuart Mill famously who who I love but I kind of disagree with him on this point he made a distinction between um lower order pleasures and higher order pleasures and Jason you I think you mentioned you're not very sympathetic to that or at least we do the higher order because we need a break from the lower order or something like that is that right That's um right. Yeah. So, so you might think of this as it's not just the um, quantity, it's the quality, something like that. So it's not just about getting the most amount of pleasure. They're of like different qualities. I don't like that distinction that much. Um, and we, we can sort of talk about why. I think if the higher order pleasures are, higher order pleasures I put in quotes, are for some reason more valuable, it's only going to be because it, it in fact is more more pleasure. Um, I like jelly beans. I don't have that sophisticated uh, pleasures, to be honest, but, um, you know, uh, I love the band Modest Mouse. And when I first was exposed to them, uh, they sounded very discordant to me and I didn't really like them that much. Um, but then I, for whatever reason, I sort of like grew to like them. I wouldn't say that listening to Modest Mouse is like a higher order pleasure than eating jelly beans. Um, I would just say it's more pleasurable. Like I can eat a few jelly beans and it's fine. Um, but then I get tired of them. Um, listening to Modest Mouse, like I love them. It, it just it just makes me feel really good. Um, and it's more. If it wasn't more, then I wouldn't care about it. Yeah. But you couldn't listen to them all day. Um, also true. Yeah. Just That's like true. you couldn't eat the jelly beans all day. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyone who knows me well knows that I eat a slab of chocolate every day. Uh, nice. Just just before this show, I finished my slab of chocolate. And there's no amount of brain in a vat. I, not that there's no amount. I mean, brain in a vat is great and I really do enjoy it. But an hour of brain in a vat for me is about as pleasurable as that chocolate bar. And I, I, I wouldn't say one is better than the other. I would, I would just say having both is better than having one. Yeah. Mark mentioned moral pleasures, which I, I maybe I've heard that term. Um, there might be moral pleasures. Um, I, uh, Mark, I'll be interested to hear if you had something different in mind, but um, well, taking pleasure in doing something moral, but that's only going to occur for you if you actually care about morality. I think um, um, a lot of us aren't like super morally good people, <laughs> um, but we certainly, I certainly derive a lot of pleasure from seeing people be moral in movies, sometimes even from doing evil in movies too. That can be fun too. But you sort of get this like great feeling, especially if you care about morality, when you see somebody like doing the right thing or doing the noble thing, especially if they've been bad in the past and they sort of have this redemption story. If you care about morality, that's going to feel really good. So that might be a moral pleasure. And I like those. Um, but again, I, for me, it's not because they're higher order. They just feel good. I just feel good when I watch that yeah, so I gather you're with Bentham in the sense that Pushpin is as good as poetry, right? Like, if you like it, then that's sufficient. Um, yeah. 
But you did hint at this notion that there are certain things that might require you to go through a painful process to enjoy them, to kind of acculturate your palate. So the first time you hear Modest Mouse, you're like, ah, oh, this is crap. You know, but you you kind of work through the pain. You voluntarily go through a, an unpleasurable process because it yields out a greater pleasure, something that you're not going to get sick of, something that you can enjoy. And I think that's this notion of being able to climb that that pleasure hierarchy. That there are certain things where the, the pleasure is it's it's enjoyable, but it's short lasting. You know, the pleasure that you might get from from writing a novel, for example, might be very long lasting. It might be quite painful to go through the process, you know, having to write every single day, having to tear up pages, having to make all these adjustments. But ultimately, you know, the joy that you get from the completed product, you might say, well, you know, the chocolates are great, but, you know, they really do pale in comparison to, you know, having the novel. So when John Stuart Mill talks about this, he says like the way you judge is you ask like experts, like basically people who have experienced both and whatever one they like to, I don't know if we take a vote or exactly how this is supposed to work, but like whatever one's the experts who've experienced both say is better then that's the one that's better or, or higher order. Now you might say, well, the average person like doesn't like listening to Mozart. They like listening to, I don't know, but insert popular band. But, the, but then what we say is like, well, they haven't really experienced because they haven't gone through this process that um, you just just mentioned. As my Modest Mouse example suggests, I think it's sort of like a, just a contingent fact that often this process does occur. Like we, our, our tastes do develop and we sort of climb this, um, this sort of ladder or whatever. But again, what we're after, at least what I'm after, is, is more pleasure, not some like lofty um, thing. Now, it's interesting because we sort of have to take people's word for it. In fact, I, one of my best friends loved Modest Mouse, and I was like, what, what's going on here? But I sort of like trusted. Um, and you're not going to go through the process unless you have some reason to believe. I have a few friends who do like very cold water swimming, and they claim that like once you get through it, like it's, it's exhilarating, it's amazing. I sort of believe them. But here, the problem is that I'm just weak-willed. Like it just sounds too miserable to get there, and I'm not going to do it. So one way of uh, solving this problem as the Benthamite, um, so the Benthamite thinks they aren't qualitatively different pleasures, is you might distinguish between just different lengths of pleasures. So as Mark said, once you've written a novel, you derive, derive pleasure from it for a long time. Or once you go for that cold swim, you derive pleasure from it for, for a long time or very intense pleasure. So you might, you might um, talk about uh, the intensity of the pleasure at any given moment, or you might talk about the duration of the pleasure, but neither of those might equate with some sort of um, morally better pleasure or some sort of um, some, some mysterious uh, um, variable according to which that pleasure is better um, if it's not just quant quantity or, or uh, intensity. Um, and yeah, I, th I think good sex and jelly beans and chocolate is going to get you very far. It's just eventually it's enough. And so you've got to listen to some Bach. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, yeah. and Bach is the palate, pl palate cleanser. And then, you know, you get right back at it. <laughs> Right. Jason, you're only saying this because you haven't had, you know, one of the world's greatest pleasures, which is eating a child while they're still alive. Um, That's right. This That's is right. the kind of thing that just brings untold joy for generations. To come. Yeah. So, so this is a good example of where moral, uh, where morality and pleasure, you know, they conflict. So you'd be doing something terrible, 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 something that greatly reduces the moral value of your life but uh, might feel great uh, to some people. Uh, I don't think I'd enjoy it very much, uh, but perhaps you, you would, Mark. Try, just have a nibble of those little baby toes. <laughs> You'll uh, culture your palate sufficiently. 
We'll have you. We'll Got to get over it. Uh, full orphanages of kids soon. <laughs> so Mark is on on this on this drive to get our channel banned, and uh, every episode <laughs> he goes a little further. Nice. <laughs> Because maybe that's Mark's greatest pleasure. <laughs> um, Shane, we want to thank you so much for appearing on the show. It was uh, fantastic having you, and it's a great topic. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for your time. It was an honor. I'm a big fan of the show. So thanks for having me on. 